welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In his early 20s, Benjamin Franklin embarked on what he called a bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection, intending to master a list of 13 virtues. He soon came up, uh, gave up on perfection rather, but continued to believe that these attributes, along with a generous heart and a bemused acceptance of human frailty, laid the foundation for both a good life and a workable society. Well, writer and visual artist and Utah resident Teresa Jordan wondered if Franklin's uh, notions of virtue, which some might consider antiquated, might offer guidance to a nation increasingly divided by angry righteousness. She decided to try to live his list for a year, focusing on each virtue for a week at a time and taking weekends off to attend to the seven deadly sins. The journal she kept became her new book, The Year of Living Virtuously, Weekends Off. It's a collection of illustrated essays, weaving personal anecdotes with the views of theologians, philosophers, ethicists, evolutionary biologists, a whole range of scholars and scientists within the emerging field of consciousness studies. And during her journey, she was surprised, as was Benjamin Franklin before her, to quote Franklin, to find myself so much fuller of false than I had imagined. And she joins us from her home in Virgin. Uh, Teresa Jordan, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. It's wonderful to talk with you. Uh, thanks for joining us. I understand that uh, this project came about in part, you write this in your introduction, uh, a, 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 as a part of a desire to get back into writing after spending some time in the visual arts. You're a talented visual artist as well. That's right. I took a sort of um, um, detour in midlife. I got very interested in visual art, and I went back to school. I went to the University of Utah and their wonderful art department. And really for a number of years, primarily did um, visual art. I kept teaching, writing, and uh, I when I decided to go back to I really wanted to, to write seriously again, I felt I needed to get my chops up. And, and when I do teach, I often... I always really, in classes with students, I start out with um, to get them warmed up to writing and doing some writing exercises, free writes and triggered writing, throwing out a, a word or a phrase to provoke um, a train of thought. And it's always fascinating where those pieces of writing go. Often students are just amazed. They'll think, I've never do I could write that or I would write that when I walked in the room today. And so I thought, well... I'll try that with myself. And so initially, finding this, stumbling across this list again from Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, which I had read, I think, probably um, in fifth or sixth grade, but had forgotten about, I just thought, well, those those issues affect us every single day, the issues of virtue and vice, and those are provocative triggers. So I really started into it just as almost a finger exercises for a pianist, that sort of practice. And then it went from there. Uh, you, you write also that Benjamin Franklin is your favorite founding father, and that you, you connect that with growing up in a Wyoming ranch community. How'd, where, where's that connection? Well, Benjamin Franklin was, you know, there's a saying that George Washington was, um, of the founding fathers, George Washington was first in his, the heart of his countrymen, but Benjamin Franklin was first in everything else. And he was, he was an extraordinarily broad and, and, uh, ambitious and gifted person. I mean, he was an, a printer, a, a prodigious writer from a very early age. He started publishing under the pseudonym of, of Silence Do Good, The Rye Widow, when he was only 16. Um, he was an inventor. I mean, so many things that, um, make our lives better today, like, I'm of a certain age where bifocals are important. He invented those. But he was um, a scientist. He, he first understood and described the Gulf Stream, among many, many other scientific discoveries. And above all, he was a statesman and a diplomat. And he really, I really don't, most historians believe we wouldn't have the country we have without him. He's the only one who played a major role in all four of the, of the documents that allowed us to be America, which were the, the, the Declaration of Independence, the alliance with France, without which we could not have won the Revolutionary War. And he was uniquely gifted and able to, main, to build that and maintain that then the peace with Britain when the war was over and finally he really was the voice that allowed the very different ideas about what this country to, to 
should be to to find collaboration and compromise and ratify the American Constitution. So, in terms of making things work, he was he was um, gifted maybe beyond anyone that mm. we've ever had in this country. But he was also, and this is maybe why he was he played such a role uh, in my own thoughts growing up. He was. The, sort of the patron saint of self-reliance. And I did grow up on a uh, an isolated ranch. We were in southeast Wyoming, 50 miles from Cheyenne. And you really had to, you, you couldn't call a plumber, you couldn't call a vet. Um, you, you had to figure out um, how, to, how to fix things, how to make things work on your own. And I appreciated that about Franklin. He was a... Um, an autodidact. I mean, he taught himself everything and anything. He was extremely curious, which I identified with. Um, and and he also had this great sense of humor and this appreciation of other people. He really wanted he wanted to live a virtuous life. He wanted not only to do good but to be good. And yet he wasn't a prig. I, he had a he had a great acceptance of human foibles, including I may say his own. Mm-hmm. And he was he was very aware of his own shortcomings, and he tried to to negotiate them to to still be able to build the sorts of relationships he wanted, and uh, on a very large scale, the so- sorts of society he wanted to live in. It is, it's interesting. It's inspiring. It's uh, I guess from a vantage point of age, it's uh, which he himself had. It's uh, he was a little bemused at his earlier self, but but in his twenties, I believe, and this is set out in the autobiography, um, one of the best autobiographies ever, I think. Uh, he set out to systematically. Um, cultivate these virtues. He had a list of twelve, right? Until his friend suggested yes. that uh, maybe he ought to had ought to overcome pride. <laughs> That's exactly right. He started out with with twelve, and um, um, a friend of his, a Quaker friend, as a matter of fact, looked at this list and said, "You know, Ben, you're missing something. You really, you know, you 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 sort of suffer from arrogance. I think you might want to add humility to this list." And at the end of his life, I mean, you know, I think humility is hard for Americans. Uh, We are not a humble people. And Benjamin Franklin was not a humble man. He was very gifted. He liked, uh, and he worked very, very hard. And he liked um, reaping the rewards of both. Uh, at the end of his life, he said, you know, I have, I have succeeded often at the appearance of humility, but I have seldom succeeded at the reality of it. And yet, it, it, you know, and I, and I think that that's the idea maybe that I came into looking at humility with, that humility would be a sort of self-deprecation or a, or a, or a, um, uh, a belittlement of the self in some way. But what Jefferson had that I've come to think is the real core of humility is that he had a genuine interest and a genuine respect in other people. And as much as he loved to talk and as interesting a conversationalist as he was when he was talking, he also learned to listen. One of his virtues was silence. And he had, uh, an essay of his that's been important to me is on conversation. And he, you know, he pointed out what deep down we all know, that when we are talking, we are not learning. We, you know, we learn by listening to other people. And one thing that he did throughout his life, I mentioned his first writing, which he, he apprenticed to his, his uh, brother, a printer, and he started submitting pieces to his brother's paper. He didn't think his brother would publish him if he knew it was Ben, but he started writing under the pseudonym of Silence Do Good. And throughout his life, he wrote under dozens, maybe even hundreds of pseudonyms when he was in London, still trying to find a, a workable compromise for the Americans to stay under the crown. He, he wrote under over 40 pseudonyms, half of which were British and half were, were American. And doing this, quite literally putting himself in, in other people's shoes and, and in their imaginations and in their concerns, he, he garnered a great respect for the, for the reality that what we see is different depending on where we where we sit, and that people could have very different ideas, and not be evil, you know, not be, but but simply be 
operating from their own view of the world. And I think this was this, which is a, an understanding, a sort of humility. I think this was really at the core of him being such a gifted statesman. Talking about listening, you you have there's a page in the book. It's uh, there's it looks like a little a block print. It's it's a deer. The, the word is attend, and you quote uh, yes. Philip Glass who talked about, in composing listening, uh, he says, composing music is a form of concentrated listening, which is very interesting. Yes. Yes. And he, and he said, you know, I don't compose music so much as listen to, to what is already there. Hmm. And, I, you know, I think so many creative people will, um, will tell you something similar. Isabel Allende talks about uh, the, um, the the deep river from which all stories come. Uh, a metaphor I've, uh, that's been important to me is the cave of the stories, and it's sort of getting very, very quiet and uh, and seeing what what wants to come up, what wants to be articulated in music or in poetry or in or in or in prose or in visual art. Um, I think that insight. Uh, used in in terms of public leaders, in terms of spiritual leaders, it often comes from some ability to be to step back and be quiet and ask, like Socrates, what what don't I know? What am I not seeing here? Hmm. Uh- the impulse, I, I think all of us can relate to the impulse that Benjamin Franklin had uh, it, as a young man, and I think through his life, uh, that impulse to win that battle, that internal battle. You quote E.B. White. We do have a, a gigantic internal battle uh, going on. Uh, Benjamin Franklin tried to systematize this, this progress, but uh, I think we all, we all recognize that. Um, but you talk about being more interested in virtue than righteousness. I wonder if you could explain that, and that righteousness scares you. Yes, yes, righteousness scares me. You know, at at the end of his life, when he was looking back and 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 and, um, and saying, "I was surprised to find myself so much fuller of fault than I imagined," he also forgave himself, and he said, "If I can and paraphrase this, he said that the extreme uh, correctness that I." Um, uh, was asking of myself, if it were known, would make me ridiculous, ridiculous, and in fact make a foppery or uh, a folly of virtue. Um, and if you know, if you look at fundamentalism, fundamentalism is an is an extreme of virtue. It's a belief that there is one right way, and you, and perhaps you alone, know that way. That you understand what God wants, and God wants death and destruction on everyone else. And that's um, that. That's the core of fundamentalism. That's the core of what we're struggling with in, in, um, in, in extreme and fundamentalist religions of all sorts, uh, the Spanish Inquisition in the, in the uh, um, Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda today. So that, extre- uh, ex- the excess of any virtue to excess is a vice. Mm. Uh, I'd like to have you give us your definition of virtue. And this, said, uh, reading your introduction, you took uh, your husband's definition of sin and, and turned that around. This was in response to a questionnaire. Yes, yes. We were both asked to be part of a, um, 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 a site called uh, 12 Questions that asked us 12 questions about life and asked us to respond to them. And one was, what is your definition of virtue? What is your definition of vice? And or of sin, and and my husband Hal Cannon, uh, who is uh, a musician and folklorist and a long-term sort of Utah um, uh, uh, oh, uh, collector and and an enlightener of old Utah traditions, but he he said he thought of sin as making the world go backward through human action, and it's very simple, but you know I think that's true, and and uh, and I think virtue is is making the world go forward through human action, doing something which supports um, the uh, love, compassion, getting along, making our, making our society work. Um, I, I, I found, uh, again, in that introduction, I talked about my mom, who died when I was 20. She was quite young when she had a, an aneurysm. Uh, but she continues to be a great teacher to me, and she, 
she was not a super mom. She was very clear about, you know, she was she was quite happy to be a good enough mom, to be a good enough housekeeper. She always said about housekeeping, she didn't want to be remembered for her housekeeping. She didn't want to be remembered as a slob, but neither did she want to be remembered as a as a as as someone who was pristine. And this position gave her time. It gave her space. It allowed her to be playful with her kids. It allowed her to have a playful relationship with her husband. Um, she was a good friend and uh, to her many friends and uh, active on the, on the ranch. And, and it also gave her time. She was a, a wonderful reader, and, and she loved to disappear in, into a book. And, uh, and she could do so without, without guilt. Hmm. So you, you, she was, I guess, and you were talking about moderation in pursuit of, of virtue, which which flies in the face, I think, of sometimes of uh, notions of we have to be excellent in everything we do, right, including self improvement. That's yes, that's right. And uh, you know, I don't know how long Benjamin Franklin followed his virtue project. He he set out this series of charts. And even Benjamin, you know, thought he couldn't master them all at once. So he set out these charts, and he figured he would focus on each virtue a week at a time. So 13 virtues, that, you know, is a quarter of a year, and you could do four rounds in a year. And he he wrote, he thought by uh, a number of rounds, he would have a clean slate. And uh, we really don't know, or at least I haven't been able to find out. Scholars somewhere may know, but how long he actually kept this up. My sense is that he didn't really attend to it um, for a very long time. And I think that that sort of hyper-attention, that almost navel-gazing, um, doesn't doesn't work very well. I think I, I found for myself, I originally thought, well, I will just write each week about... Uh, about how this virtue is played out in my own week, and uh, uh, the virtue, say the virtue of moder uh, of moderation or the virtue of tranquility, but very quickly I found that in any given week, um, our lives are more complicated than that. And as a writer, you need to keep yourself interested. Uh, if you don't keep yourself interested, your readers certainly aren't going to be interested. And I found myself wanting, needing to go outside of my own experience. And I'm sure I, I expect that this is what happened with uh, with with Benjamin Franklin hmm. as well. Um, but he continued to 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 keep those virtues in mind and hone to them. I think as he tried to make decisions, tried to understand his own actions sometimes when they weren't as uh, didn't have as positive out, an outcome as, as he had hoped. You uh, you have One an the, oh go ahead. I, I was just going to say that the subtitle for this book is One Woman's Search for Meaning in an Ordinary Life. And I think that, the, you know, these virtues and vices play out in our ordinary lives. I, I'm not, I didn't write about the big hot-button issues, you know, of, of, of corruption on Wall Street or, or, um, or, or pride in, in, in Washington, D.C., or at least I didn't to, to any degree. You know, you look at something like the story of King Lear, and my favorite of all the Shakespearean plays, and King Lear was not a villain. His tragic flaw wasn't that he that he um, was a tyrant. He didn't commit genocide. Uh, he didn't um, he didn't brutalize his family. In fact, he wanted to be a good father. He wanted to, he wanted his legacy to continue with his daughters. His tragic flaw, flaws were the flaws all of us have. He, he was susceptible to flattery. He couldn't understand the sincere devotion of his youngest daughter. He, um, uh, he was deaf to the advice of his dearest friend. And that, from that, you know, those most human of, of, of follies, of, of failures, those, what happens to us every day over the dinner table, or, or at least once a week over the dinner table, uh, the whole kingdom was lost. So that's what interests me, mm. is just how these, you know, how these, um, what causes us to struggle in our relationships? How do we repair our transgressions? How do we work to to help our own communities and our country and, and even the world go forward through human action? 
Those are excellent questions. We'll uh, dive into uh, some of those following a break. We're talking with Teresa Jordan, um, and uh, she is author most recently of a very interesting uh, book. She's uh, based this on Benjamin Franklin. He set out to systematically uh, cultivate virtues in his life, a list of 13 virtues. He gave up on the project, but uh, he uh, he said this might uh, offer a key uh, to us as we uh, offer uh, perhaps acceptance to others as we uh, continue to try to improve ourselves. And these, this idea, which some might uh, consider antiquated, this, this idea of virtues, Teresa Jordan says, might offer guidance to a nation increasingly divided by angry righteousness. That's a very apt description. We'll talk about that. As well as some very interesting examples in the book. I'll uh, want to get into the uh, idea of tranquility. She uses the idea of Terry Waite, who was uh, captured, held captive for four years in Lebanon, and uh, Brooke Hopkins, the University of Utah professor, I think most of us uh, know about, who uh, uh, broke his neck and was captured in his body for some time. And a very interesting um, history behind Owen Wister, author of The Virginian and uh, Ideas of Animal Cruelty, uh, draws all of these into her book and more, of course. And the uh, book is uh, The Year of Living Virtuously, Weekends Off. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open Monday through Saturday until 3. Accepting holiday orders for chocolate Yule Logs, cranberry tea cakes, and Stalin holiday fruit bread. Ah, the holidays. A time for peace, a time for love. Look, uh, uh, first of all, address that point. Well, let's address a lot of things So, Sean Hannity, compassionate guy, huh? It really throws people. (laughs) I'm Guy Raz, finding compassion at Fox News and other stories of empathy. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Today at 10 o'clock after Access Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. As you probably know, in his early 20s, Benjamin Franklin embarked on what he called a bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. He intended to master a list of 13 virtues. He soon gave up on perfection, but continued to believe that these attributes, along with a generous heart and a bemused acceptance of human frailty, laid the foundation for both a good life and a workable society. So now a writer and visual artist and Utah resident Teresa Jordan wonders if Franklin's notions of virtue, which some might consider antiquated, might offer guidance to a nation increasingly divided by angry righteousness. And she decided to try to live his list for a year, focusing on each virtue for a week at a time, taking weekends off to attend to the seven deadly sins. Teresa Jordan is our guest for the day. She joins us from her home in Virgin. So Teresa Jordan, taking weekends off to attend to the seven deadly sins, that <laughs> I chuckled at that when I first first read that you, you I don't know you you have to go back and forth what was your idea there <laughs> well I it, it in some in in some ways it was a uh, um, uh, 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 it, it was a, a uh, I, I certainly didn't want this just this project to seem as if I, I really thought that I could get a handle on virtue, that I could become a virtuous, a, 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 a perfectly virtuous person. And um, the sins do interest me very much, and, and of course we all um, struggle with them every every single day. Weekends Off became a bit of a joke, and, and, um, and in, the fa- in my family with my husband, I would say even a bit of a sore point. I, I really did start this project just thinking that this would be something on the side, that this would be, um, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, sort of like finger exercises for a pianist. I thought, you know, four hours a week, I'll, I'll take one of these and I'll write for four hours a week. But very quickly, I, there, I got very interested in, in, these, in these virtues and vices, and I needed to go outside my own experience. And this became... Um, uh, quite a research project with each virtue, with each vice, uh, understanding its historical context, uh, often um, uh, behavioral context. We now have this extraordinary new and burgeoning field of, of consciousness study that's looking at uh, 
why we act the way we do, how our brains work, how our hormonal systems work, how our endocrine systems work to affect behavior. Um, I ended up doing incredible amounts of, of research for for every one of these essays. I think the uh, source list at the end of the book goes on for something like 10 pages. And instead of something that I was sort of doing on the side, this became front and center. And and actually, uh, Weekends Off fell completely and entirely by by the wayside. So uh, I think I had wanted to look at this in the beginning as an exercise of mindfulness. And sometimes it was... uh, uh, more an exercise of obsession. Uh, I just want to mention Franklin's list, uh, and, and you mentioned that it's uh, as the man himself is pretty practical, right? These these were these yeah. are fairly practical virtues. I'll just list them very quickly: temperance, silence, order, resolution, frugality, industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, uh, chastity, and then the the, the uh, virtue that his friend uh, mentioned to him: humility. Um, I, w- I want to get into this this idea of, and you have an inscription in the front of the book, this idea that maybe it's not healthy and it, it doesn't hold your interest, didn't hold yours anyway, this this intense navel-gazing. I guess some people it would, uh, but it's but it probably not, not healthy. And so this inscription by Novalis, the first step is introspection, exclusive contemplation of the self, but whoever stops there goes only halfway. The second step must be genuine observation outward, spontaneous, sober observation of the external world. That's where your journey led you. Yes, it is, very much. And, you know, from growing up on a ranch, and, and I think with this idea of self-reliance, there was a, I don't know exactly where this came from. I don't know if someone in my family or, or a circle said that, but very early on, I remember thinking uh, a, a little motto that's been really important in my life, which is other people do it. And by that, mean, by that I don't mean uh, the way, mom, everybody else is going to the party. Why can't okay. I go to the party? But other people have been able to, to, to navigate this. Some, you know, I, I, I broke a, a colt when I was 13. And that, that came out of our Marin stud bunch. And we had, my grandfather was, um, had bought this stud that, that just really couldn't, he threw colts that were very, very difficult to break. And I wanted to break a, a colt and uh, was talked my way into getting a, a two-year-old out of, out of this Marin stud bunch. And I remember thinking, well, other people can break horses, you know, that, that if somebody else can do it, I can do it. I remember thinking that when I decided out of college that I would be a freelance writer rather than get um, a real job, which would have satisfied my father a lot better. Uh, but other but people can make their way as freelance writers. And, and so this, um, this, this idea that, that if I don't have the answer, if other people can do it, then it tells me that it's possible. And so I think that that underlay a lot of these explorations. Uh, you mentioned tranquility, and, and I, I struggle with anxiety, uh, with just that feeling of, of, of anxiety that can take you over at times. And, and over small things, I mean, just being in public or, or you know, giving a talk or something. And so when I, I wanted to look at tranquility, I, I thought, well, other people have found tranquility under conditions that that seem entirely impossible. I mean, conditions that even to think about them causes me, literally causes my blood pressure to go up. I mean, I feel fear to think about, um, for instance, being a hostage. I was a very... Uh, a, 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 a precocious reader, we I think living so far out without TV, but I read Leon Uris's book Exodus about uh, the the um, the Jews in concentration camps in World War II, and just the horror of that experience. I read that very young, and it just left it was so indelible to me, and it left me with just a, a terror of being. Um, being held hostage in a in a situation that was that was powerless, uh, and so when I I wanted to understand tranquility, I took the story of Terry Waite, who was an envoy for the Archbishop of of Canterbury and was negotiating for um, the release of hostages in Lebanon when he was taken hostage. 
he was held for four years, much of the time in solitary confinement in a, in a blackened room, a room with no light, often chained to the wall or chained to the floor. And in this horrifying, painful um, experience of, of, um, um, of, of captivity, um, he, he nonetheless, he found moments, not all the time, but he found moments of, of real um, um, transcendence, of peace, even on occasion of, of bliss. Um, um, it, it, may I just read a little bit? Yes, from cer- that? certainly. Yeah, I would love you okay. have you do that. Um, I need a structure. He realized early on, and he wrote this in the book. He wrote about it after: wake, pray, eat, wash, exercise, pray, think, eat, and so the day passes. By creating a pattern in the vacuum in which I live, I exercise my choice, affirm my identity. Even when the guard tells me that I am to be chained again, I have a schedule for the remaining hours of the day. He prayed the communion service. He worked out complicated mathematical problems in his head. He started writing a book in his imagination, something he found sustaining, if also peculiar. I sit chained to an iron radiator with nothing but my thoughts, he wrote. Some memories stream back like great pools of light. I see people I have known and feel the warmth of their company. Other days are lost to recall, waiting for the magic touch, which will bring them to life again. His mood cycled, anger, despair, boredom, but also, and increasingly over time, tranquility. I'm learning to be quiet and still within. Perhaps calm is a better word. I don't want too much stillness, as I need a certain inner tension to keep my mind alive. And so here he was, really just left with with no resources but what he had inside. And, and he found a place there um, by very conscious effort. Uh, he found a place there where he could have control over his his own life in this in this environment which was taken which was created to make him have no sense of control and he did find these moments of of calm and stillness and and even a grace in in solitude having uh, thought about this i i don't know if i i you know i think all of us have those same fears and then wonder, and I don't think you can know what you would do or be able to do unless you were in that situation. But uh, he found he found tranquility in that horrible situation. How, he did. How, how do you do that? And, she, and you know, one of the things, and again, I think by knowing that it's it's possible, uh, by um, it, it, he it, it, he had he had uh, known so many hostages. He had successfully negotiated the release of many hostages. He had known many people who had um, um, survived and, and, and emerged. He says at one point, uh, very early on, he said, you know, I've entered this rare, this rare community, this rare um, uh, company of people who have endured this, and he, they have managed to, to uh, emerge as whole people. I know that that is possible for myself. And I think that that's really the extraordinary power of stories. None of us know. I have no idea. It still just terrifies me to think of being held hostage. And yet I know that if something like that happened, or if I uh, were to come um, to experience something like Brooke Hopkins experienced, which was extraordinary physical challenge, in his case, complete uh, paralysis under, under the neck, that the story of Terry Wade and the story of Brooke Hopkins would give me a starting point. It would allow me to understand that other people had faced this challenge in a word which both Wade and, and, and Terry Wade and Brooke Hopkins are, are, are not at all afraid to use, that have experienced real suffering and yet still found meaning in their life and, and, found a way, and even found moments within it um, of of calm, of acceptance, and both of them talk about moments even of bliss. And it is a choice, isn't it? You you have a quote in the book from uh, Berkopskin's wife, I believe. But and by the way, he he I think uh, when he woke up, you know, uh, he's, he's paralyzed from the neck down, ventilated tubes, 
uh, he said to his wife, we can still have a joyful life together. I think something to that effect. Yes. And, and we can then, still build a good life. And, and then what did she, she has a quote that you have in the book. You know, at the, at the, um, Peggy Batten, Brooke's wife, and you know, this, uh, life is just full of the most extraordinary ironies, but she's a, an extremely, um, well known medical ethicist, uh, whose work has been studied and, 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 um, um, and used all around the world. And her work has, uh, focused on end of life issues, on the, on right to die and, and, uh, uh, people, um, being able to make the choices they want to make at the end of their life. And so to suddenly have this situation in both hers and Brooke's life around uh, uh, under what conditions do you do you choose to live. But she told her, she and she's lectured quite a lot, and she was lecturing a, uh, um, uh, a class at the, at the university and uh, telling the story of, of uh, this experience together. And she and Brooke, from early on, started to write a blog about their experiences, which really was a, a way for them both to understand what was going on and to communicate with each other. Um, and initially, I think they thought it was to help communicate to their friends and their family, but it became a, a collaboration, a way for them to work together and also to communicate. But... Um, Peggy was invited to speak to an honors class at the at the university, and um, she told the students about Brooke's accident and the role that writing had come to play in their in their lives as they struggled to um, um, to thrive, you know, in spite of of these huge changes. And then she suggested that the students meet their own experiences of adversity with the question, "How do you want this to change your life?" And, you know, I've, I found that question myself so interesting and so indicative of Peggy because it wasn't, you know, how is this going to change my life? But how do you want this experience to change your life? When something very bad happens, want, desire, that sense that this might have some modicum even of opportunity is sort of the furthest from our, from our, from our minds. But it is the question, I think, on which success uh, and building a meaningful life in that condition, maybe maybe that is exactly the question it turns around. And then she um, she told me that afterwards, after she'd asked this question in this class, how do you want this to change your life? A student wrote her and said, I can't stop thinking about this question. I don't have an answer yet, but I'm looking forward to figuring it out. Mm. Yeah, that's, uh, the, that's a very good question. We're going to take another break when we come back more with Teresa Jordan. And uh, the book is just out, and it's called The Year of Living Virtuously, Weekends Off, a collection of illustrated essays, weaving personal anecdotes, views of theologians, philosophers, ethicists, evolutionary biologists, a whole range of scholars and scientists. And uh, she bases this on Benjamin Franklin's quest for perfection. In his early 20s, he set out on a, in a systematic way to, um, uh, to perfect his life uh, and perfect uh, 13 virtues. Uh, so she uh, takes this as a jumping-off point. Interesting discussion. Uh, the phone lines are open if you'd like to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495. You can join us on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio, and our email is upraxis at gmail.com. More with Teresa Jordan following the break. American pianist Garrick Olson won the Chopin competition in Warsaw in 1970, but his career encompasses so much more than just music by Chopin. We'll go to a concert in Cincinnati to hear Garrick Olson and the Cincinnati Symphony play the concerto by Samuel Barber on the next Performance Today from APM. Monday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Humanities Council, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Online at utahhumanities.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Another 10 minutes left in the program. You can call us at 1-800-826-1495. Email us to upraxess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. 
My guest uh, for another 10 minutes is Teresa Jordan. She and uh, her husband, Hal Cannon, live in Virgin, Utah, in the southern part of the state. And her new book is a very interesting book, The Year of Living Virtuously, Weekends Off. This is based on a journal she kept while uh, she uh, set out on a project to follow Benjamin Franklin's systematic uh, cultivation of uh, 13 virtues. And she looked at the uh, seven deadly vices as well. Um, and Teresa Jordan, I, I, was, I was fascinated by your chapter comparing and contrasting Benjamin Franklin and, and Ayn Rand. Uh, there are some similarities. There are some differences. Um, I wonder if you could uh, take us through that in in brief. And uh, the, each is uh, kind of a uh, what an icon for self reliance, but in different ways. That's right. That's right. You know, I was I was interested in this question because um, my uh, my parents, most especially my my father, were followers of Anne Rand. Uh, she was very popular with conservatives in the in the fifties and, and in the sixties. Her um, novel Atlas Shrugged has been considered um, uh, in a in a poll of the most uh, important books um, in the world of American readers. Um, the Book of the Month Club. Um, Conducted, it was considered the second most influential book after the Bible, um, and I think a lot of us read that when when we were when we were young. I think it is a uh, and so much of her philosophy underlies um, um, is called upon in in the Tea Party and and um, at, at this point you'll often see these signs. Who is John Galt? Which was the line out of Alice Shrugged, and John Galt was. Uh, the extremely individualistic um, he, uh, hero of that of that tale, um, and it, it, both Benjamin Franklin and and Anne Rand were extremely interested in self reliance. They came at it from very different um, from very different directions, and Benjamin Franklin believed in community, and and he believed that. Uh, he said the the good men do individually is 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 very small compared to the good that they can do by working together from his earliest days uh, uh, in you know his late teens and early twenties he was uh, forging communities for self improvement for uh, a library association for a a, a a group of people discussing the important ideas of their time. He um, developed insurance uh, in, Philad- in, in Philadelphia. He in, societies for insurance, for uh, fire control, for, for fire departments. Um, he uh, his, all he believed that man was a social being, and that man working together, man in a large sense, man, men, women, and families working together, was the way to make a society that worked. And Rand had um, had. Her her family lost everything in the in the she was um, born in in Russia. Her family lost everything in the revolution. Um, she saw altruism and a call to community action uh, perverted into into control and totalitarianism and and uh, a horrible um, um, transgression against human rights. She escaped with her with her parents' help. They helped her come to America. She landed in Hollywood and was a Hollywood writer uh, before she started writing novels. And for her, any call to community action was a call to, um, to, to corruption. She saw anyone who talked about the greater good as being, uh, as being corrupt. She felt the world divided into those who stood entirely alone and acted, put their own interest above no one else's as heroes, and she saw everyone else as, as parasites, moochers, or looters. Those were her three, her three um, um, terms and, and, and division of the rest of, of human society. Um, Benjamin Franklin was a very flexible thinker. He was constantly questioning, and ran... Um, was very proud of what she said later in life that all her ideas were fully formed by the time she was 14. Um, she said that she um, uh, expanded upon them, but that her basic understanding of the world was formed by the time she was 14. She's extremely popular with, with young readers, and particularly um, from that come from a conservative bent, or I think who have... Um, um, 
who come from an environment in which, um, it, it, frankly, from from families that maybe don't operate as as well as 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 they might, because she she uh, she gives this view of a very round world where every question has an absolute answer, and also where um, where what other people want of you is it, it means nothing. Uh, you're entirely in control of your own destiny. And so I think that that's very attractive for, for people who, for whatever reason, feel out of control of their own destiny. It does not work in politics. We have right now, I think, from into, to some degree, because the Tea Party is um, does draw on this absolutist, thou shalt not um, um, change your idea under any circumstances, uh, we have a politic that's very broken right now. Uh, we 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 can't get anything done in Congress. It didn't work in Anne Rand's own life, and uh, she had her philosophical groups all broke up over. Um, um, she actually had an affair with her her um, intellectual heir, and when that broke up, she um, cut all ties with with them. And within her groups, um, she um, she would allow no dissent. She would allow no flexibility or, or growth of her, of her own ideas. And she died alone. She died attended only by a nurse. She had essentially banished everyone with the exception of one young acolyte from her life because they weren't pure enough in their, in their uh, belief and their following of her ideas. I see her as essentially a tragic person mm-hmm. on a personal level. Um, and I don't think that, that her ideas have been positive for us as, as a nation. Yeah, very, um, uh, it's a very apropos discussion, isn't it? And, and contrast for today's world, which uh, you can certainly read in the book. There, there's much else. So we, we are out of time. We'll have to close the discussion down now. But a very interesting book, The Year of Living Virtuously, Weekends Off. And the author is uh, Teresa Jordan. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, this has just been a, a complete delight, and thank you so much for having me on. I am such an admirer of your program that it's a thrill to be on it. Oh, oh, thank you. Appreciate that. By the way, I love the I love the um, the dedication, um, and that that'd be a whole other uh, discussion. You dedicate it to your husband Hal Cannon, right? And you say to the master yes. of banjos and other highly strung instruments. Something to that effect. So, yes, to the patron saint uh, of bandos <laughs> and, and other highly strung instruments. <laughs> but it makes me want to sit down and talk to the both of you together, so that maybe we'll do that at, at some point. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, and have a wonderful day and a uh, wonderful week. Uh, you too. Bye-bye. Tomorrow, we're going to uh, talk about what some see as the uh, solution to affordable housing, solution to homelessness, a solution to sustainability issues, tiny houses. We're going to talk to some people who live in these tiny houses, and believe me, some of these are tiny. Uh, We'll talk about that on the program tomorrow. That's coming up. Thanks for listening today. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Hi, I'm Rue Mahoney with Stokes Nature Center. If you've ever had the opportunity to visit Stokes Nature Center in the Uinta Wasatch Cache National Forest, you know that we're located about a third of a mile up a narrow trail, cut out of a steep slope of the Bear River Mountains on one side, and dropping down into the rocky waters of the Logan River on the other. Which is why it's always a particularly sobering experience when making a winter morning trek up the aptly named river trail to the nature center to find my way blocked by 1,200 pounds of antlered bullish brown bulk standing six feet at the shoulder. In case you've never happened upon a moose yourself, they are what happens when Mother Nature decides that the bulk of an NFL player and the legs of a supermodel should get together in one massively large and absurdly leggy deerzilla. And while I've never met a moose whose bored browsing and indifferent glands didn't make it pointedly and maybe a little painfully obvious that I was far more impressed with them than they have ever been with me, they can pose a threat to the incautious admirer. While I don't encounter moose every month of the winter, I do hear well-intentioned Nature Center visitors talk frequently about their own encounters, which too often include accounts of trying to get closer to snap a great picture. Moose are the largest member of the deer family in North America and are found in the northern and northeastern forests of Utah. 
Despite their size and top-heavy appearance, they thrive in watery environments. An adult moose doesn't hesitate to wade into deep water to browse on aquatic vegetation and can often be spotted swimming effortlessly across lakes and marshes to get to prime grazing or escape a perceived threat. Their hollow hair makes them incredibly buoyant swimmers and keeps them well insulated against the cold, both in and out of the water. In winter months, they may leave frozen high alpine lakes and seek out forage on evergreens and bark, making encounters on lower elevation hiking trails more likely. Male moose rut in the fall, tirelessly seeking out willing females. Easily distinguished by their large antlers, which can spread to more than four feet across, a bull moose in rut can become unexpectedly aggressive. Signs of aggression include laying back their ears, raised hair along their neck, and licking their snout. Female moose don't have the impressive antlers of their male counterparts, but don't let that fool you into thinking they're docile. A mother moose with her spring calf is quite possibly the most dangerous moose and will use her powerful legs and sharp hooves to trample anything she thinks might be a threat to her babe. This includes the unlucky hiker, or more often, an unleashed dog. Wild Aware Utah is a nonprofit offering education on how to reduce conflict with wildlife. They recommend responding calmly to encounters with moose, talking loudly to let them know you're there, and leashing pets. Often the moose will move along on its own, uninterested in conflict. But if you find yourself in the bullseye of a moose's ire, the best course of action is to back away slowly. And if you're unlucky enough to be charged, get behind a tree or a solid obstacle. Moose can run up to 35 miles an hour, which means you're unlikely to outrun one no matter how much adrenaline is fueling your flight. To learn more about moose and how to prevent conflict with other Utah wildlife, visit wildawareutah.org. For Wild About Utah and Stokes Nature Center, I'm Rue Mahoney. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. If we miss the joy in Christianity, we are, we are missing the point. Stephen Colbert has called Father James Martin the chaplain of the Colbert Nation. On the next On Being for Christmas, the Jesuit spiritual sensibility and sense of humor behind his beloved books and the theology of Pope Francis. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. Thank you.